Welcome to today's Advent Scripture Reading and Devotion, where we're fixing our minds and hearts on our blessed hope, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Today's Scripture passage, as well as tomorrow's, is Zechariah's song in Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80. Uh, For context, Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. Here's what the Word of the Lord says. And John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has helped us and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from earliest times salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to abraham our father to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies could serve him without fear in holiness and righteous before him all our days and so you child will be called prophet of the most high For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the merciful compassion of our God, by which the dawn will visit to help us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to direct our feet into the way of peace. And the child kept growing and becoming strong in spirit, and was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Today's devotion is called Zechariah's Song. Why do you need God? Today we'll look at part one of that by Alistair Begg. Song lyrics seem to have a way of embedding themselves in our memory, so that as soon as we hear the first line, we know the song. Growing up in the 60s, my memorable lines include, When I get older, losing my hair. Hello darkness, my old friend. Hey mister, that's me up on the jukebox. There is a house in New Orleans. How did you score on knowing those songs? If you're young enough to be struggling with these classics, Google the first line to give you what the song is. When it comes to first lines, The opening words of the Song of Zechariah deserve to be in anyone's list of memorable ones. While Mary's is the first song recorded in Luke's Gospel, hers was not the first miraculous pregnancy to be described. That belonged to her relative Elizabeth. She and her husband, Zechariah, had been childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. But before the angel Gabriel visited Mary, he had visited Zechariah to announce that his wife would fall pregnant and that their son John would grow up to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John would be the warm-up act for the main event. And that's what Zechariah sang about as his son lay in his arms. It's a song whose first line contained two words that lie at the heart of the Christmas message. Here are those two words, come and redeemed. A visit with a purpose. God has come to visit. He's moving into the neighborhood, but why? To redeem. 
If you want to understand the first Christmas, if you want to grasp the purpose of God's visit, you need to understand redemption. So what is that about? Redemption is the act of providing a payment to free someone. And Zechariah is explaining God's work in his present situation by referencing God's work in the past, in the time of the Exodus, a millennium and a half before. It was the time when, to give an extremely cut-down summary, God's people were stuck in Egypt, enslaved by Pharaoh. Despite Pharaoh's resistance, God freed them through a series of plagues sent against the inhabitants of Egypt. The last plague was the worst, death. The oldest son in each family would die. God warned them. But God also provided a way out through the death of a lamb. The lamb died, the people who trust God lived, and Pharaoh, devastated by what his decision to resist God had done to his nation, let them go. God had redeemed his people. Well, that's great, and it's an exciting historical story, but what does it have to do with Zechariah, and what does it have to do with you and me? Everything, actually, because Zechariah says God is redeeming people all over again. Not from enslavement to an Egyptian king, but from enslavement to their own sin, to our own sin. We need, as he says, forgiveness of our sins. What Zechariah is referring to here is not being freed from a material plight, but a moral plight. Sin is an unpopular word, but it's a word that the Bible unashamedly uses, and it's a word which explains both what we see within us and what we see around us. Sin is essentially me putting myself where God deserves to be, in the place of authority and majesty, running my own life, charting my own course. It's saying to God, whether very politely or extremely angrily, I don't want you. I won't obey your commands. I will not listen to your word. I'll call the shots. Literally, to sin means to miss the mark. I don't know if you've ever seen the World Darts Championships. One of the main competitions is held in England each Christmas. Two competitors stand nearly eight feet from a board, 18 inches wide, and throw darts at it. Thousands turn up to watch. The worst thing the players can do is miss the board. To throw short or to throw wide, these contestants are wonderful at it and it sounds very easy, but if you've never tried it, have a go. It's not as simply as it looks. And the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone throws and misses when it comes to glorifying, to recognizing, pleasing, loving, and following the God who made us who sustains us, and who gives us everything we have. You can miss the target by an inch or by a mile, but no one fails to miss. We don't much care whether we miss or not. We're not even aiming at living in a way that pleases God, but rather one that pleases ourselves. But even when we do care and do try to obey God, we still miss. Even on my best day, I miss the mark, the target. I sin. Sin is something we choose, and yet sin is also something that traps us. We can't stop even if we want to. 
like a bad habit that proves impossible to break, we're enslaved to what we've chosen. Spoiled and separated. Sin's not merely a bad habit. In fact, sin is our greatest problem. People suggest that our greatest problem is a lack of education or a lack of social welfare or self-esteem. But if that's the case, then why are family gatherings at Christmas so often occasions of discord and conflict, even for the most academically gifted, well-off, personally confident people? Why is this not all fixed by now? Why is it not all sorted? Is it not fundamentally a lack of education or welfare or self-esteem that spoils things? It's sin. Sin causes alienation from others. It causes brokenness at the hands of others. And perhaps you're a victim of something that's been done to you. Sin causes conflict with others. Not only wars on the world stage, but closer to home. Conflict within our hearts, our houses, our marriages. The lies we tell, the envy we feel, the anger we show. Each time we miss the mark, We spoil our own lives and the lives of those around us. But this spoiledness is not the most serious aspect of sin because my sin has crippled my ability to know God and to live with God. I can't know God. I can't make my way back to God because I'm trapped in my sin, enslaved by my sin. I'm stuck with being separated from God, both in my present and in my eternal future. We're cosmically stuck, hopelessly separated. The singer Sting once sang, Everyone I know is lonely, and God so far away. And my heart belongs to no one, so now sometimes I pray, Please take the space between us and fill it up some way. I often hear people say that death is the great equalizer. The idea is that in eternity all bets are off and no matter what we believed or how we lived, the scale is reset. The Bible has a very different view. One early Christian, Paul, put it this way, God has set a day when he will judge the world. It will be absolutely fair and it will be final. There will be no redos. We have separated ourselves from God's love because we have sinned. And so we will be separated from God for all eternity, suffering the punishment of eternity in a place Jesus called hell, a place separated from God and everything that is good. Actually, this view of eternity, one that includes judgment, is the one that best fits our sense of justice. Whenever we hear on the news about some terrible human act and think, why doesn't God do something about that? We're asking him to judge, and the Bible says he will. All sin will be judged, and all sin will be punished by separation. That's very good news when we suffer at the hands of sinful people, and deeply troubling news because we ourselves are sinful people. Sin is our greatest problem because it separates us from the God whom we were made to know and designed to enjoy. But in another sense, the truth about sin is also our greatest insight because it explains life as we experience it. There is a mighty, loving God who made us, and so we're capable of acts of greatness and kindness. But we reject that God's authority, and so 
we're capable of selfishness and evil. We were made to enjoy life with God eternally, but we all choose to live in defiance of him. Hence the flatness, the blues that come after Christmas as once again we get beyond the busyness and distraction of the festivities and think deep down, I don't have the answer. There's not a gift I could buy or a gift I can receive that seems to satisfy. There's no vacation I could enjoy, no book I could read, not a piece of music I could listen to that will actually fill the hole. When we feel this, what we're really saying, God, please take that space between us and fill it up some way. We're asking God to redeem us from the sin we've chosen, from the slavery we cannot escape, and the debt we cannot repay. Somebody's going to pay for this. A few years ago, I was driving my brother-in-law's car around the streets of Glasgow and Scotland with my nieces in the back seat. Suddenly, one of them said, Uncle Alistair, you've gone wrong. And while I was trying to rectify the situation, I crashed into a van. I'll never forget, this fellow jumped out immediately, and he looked at his van, and he looked at me, and he said, somebody's going to pay for this. That was the first, though not the only phrase out of his mouth, and he was right. A wrong had been done, a hurt had been caused, the mark had been missed, and somebody was going to have to pay in order for things to be put right. Someone would have to bear cost. And someone will have to bear the cost of our sin. The mighty God who is really there does not just wink at sin. He cares about how our sin spoils the world he made and spoils the lives of those he made. He cares about how we reject his authority and seek to sit in his place. It makes him justifiably angry. He doesn't just let people off. He's a God who loves justice and brings justice. And so there is a punishment to be faced. There is a price to be paid. The problem that confronts us is we're unable to rectify the situation. We must pay the price unless someone comes from outside who does not share our predicament and who can pay the price to free us from the consequences of our actions. As if my brother-in-law had turned up as that fellow in the van said, somebody's going to pay for this, and had dug into his wallet and paid what it would cost to restore his van and satisfy his justified anger. When it comes to our sin, that someone can only be God himself. We need God to come, and we need God to help. And this brings us back to Zechariah, because he's singing about the truth that God has done just that. He has turned up, and he has turned up to redeem us, to pay the price, to bear the cost of freeing us and restoring us so that we can know him and live with him again forever. A question of definition. At the heart of understanding the first Christmas and why it's such good news is an understanding of the nature of your predicament. And that includes accepting the nature of sinfulness, your sinfulness, and the seriousness of sin, your sin. In other words, it involves letting God, not contemporary society, define sin. 
I read in a survey recently that only 17% of the American population refer to God in any way when asked to define sin. 83% see sin as merely something negative that's had an impact on their life that they need that they need to get cleaned up. And so they'll never understand what God was doing at the first Christmas. He didn't come to merely help us put the bits and pieces of our lives together in a way that gives us wholeness and stability. He didn't come to provide a little religious energizer battery that would make us nicer people. He didn't even come just to make your life happy. He came because you were drowning, pulled down by the weight of your sin and miles from the shore. If you're drowning, it doesn't help you for someone to come along in a boat and say, come on now, thrash a little more, try a little harder, just, just swim a little better. You'll be able to get yourself out of that. No, you need someone to reach down their hand, grasp yours, and pull you up to safety, take you to the shore. And if you know you're drowning, you don't refuse the person whose hand is offered to you. You grab it and you splutter your gratitude. That's what Zechariah is doing here. He knows that his son John will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation, of rescue through the forgiveness of their sins. He knows that John will spend his life saying, hold on, God is coming and God will rescue you. And so Zechariah sings, just as everyone who grasps what the Lord was doing at the first Christmas sings, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. God was moving into the neighborhood to free people from their sins and to fill up space between himself and sinful people sinful you, and sinful me. Thank you for joining us. Merry Christmas, and God bless.